And then there's property taxes, which is, can be very arbitrary. And, uh, and also the, the wealthy, they oftentimes have an advantage because they can afford lawyers to litigate the valuation of properties and so forth. Right. And it's hurting, it's hurting just the hardworking middle class folks and the poor folks most of all because, uh, because they can't and they just have to pay it. And there have been people in, the, in our community who've had to sell their houses because they could not afford to pay the property taxes anymore. Howdy. You're listening to the Think Brasses podcast. We host conversations with locals, politicians, and policy experts to help families thrive in Brazos County, Texas. So when you're thinking about how to make your community better, just remember, think local, think Brazos. This is the Think Brazos podcast, and today we are joined by Mr. Rick Davis, who is running for the State House District 14 state of Texas, um, and uh, for the primary election for the Republican Party. So thank you so much, Mr. Davis, for coming on the podcast. Well, appreciate you having me. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate so you. let's hear first a little bit about you in just a couple of minutes. Can we hear about your background and anything else you want to talk about yourself and why you're running? Sure. Um, well, I was, uh, I grew up in the Houston area. Okay. I went to Texas A&M. My wife grew up in the Richardson area. She also went to Texas A&M, and uh, we both graduated in May of 1986. Uh, my ring says 85 because I was uh, in the Corps of Cadets. And uh, if you're in the Corps, you typically identify with your fish class. And so mm-hmm. um, because I was studying engineering, I, I tell people I squeezed four years into five. <laughs> I took five years to graduate, but I did take a lot of extra classes because uh, I wanted just the full experience of college. I thought, you know, this is not I didn't view education as just a means to an end, but an end in itself. So I took a lot of things that were outside of my major uh, just to just to just to learn more. I really like mm-hmm. learning. So, in fact, I think I graduated with 195 hours. Uh, nowadays, people would be penalized for doing that. I mm. I don't agree with that idea because if um, if they're actually seeking to learn, I I just think that they ought to be able to do that. Anyway, my wife and I met uh, our last year at A&M. We both waited tables together right. at a restaurant called Chinari's. So, um, and Chinari's has been here. It was here for a long time, but they shut down just about three or four years ago. We, we miss it. We had some great Italian food. <laughs> so anyway, um, after we graduated, we got married. And then because I took a, a guaranteed reserve forces duty contract with the Army, okay. it meant that I had to serve either eight years or in the National Guard, the Texas Army National Guard, or eight years in the Army Reserves. So, uh, so as soon as, so I had to be qualified as an officer, you have to go through the same training that a regular army officer does. So I first went to, um, I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I completed the officer basic course there. Our oldest son was born actually at Martin Army Hospital. So he is now, well, that would have been back in uh, 87. So he's now, uh, 30, 30, uh, 34. Mm. I can't count right. So anyway, it's been a while back anyway. So, uh. After I completed the officer basic course, uh, I got into the Texas Army National Guard. I served in the 49th Armored Division for over over 10 years. Really enjoyed that. I, tra- I branch transferred from infantry to armor and became an armor officer. So I was uh, an M1 tank commander. Oh, nice. And I, I served in various positions uh, in the Army National Guard. I was uh, a platoon leader uh, a few different occasions. I was a company executive officer. I was uh, I became a company executive officer of the uh, uh, headquarters company and uh, served in some staff positions with battalion staff. And then ultimately, I was a, a company commander. So I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed my time in the Texas Army National Guard. I consider my time in the military to be somewhat humble. 
uh, I mean, I was ready to, I was ready to, to be mobilized, but I never was mobilized. This was back before nine one one. Now we came really close to being mobilized in uh, nineteen ninety one mm-hmm. when uh, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait and they had Operation Desert Shield, and then that was trans. It, 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 it turned into Operation Desert Storm. We came very close to being mobilized, but. I remember General Norman Schwarzkopf and just all the allies pulled together and it was just spectacular mm-hmm. how quickly that, that operation was conducted. But the ground war ended so quickly that we were told to stand down. So uh, I was, I'm proud to have served and was ready to serve. But um, I know that there's a lot of folks that went through a lot more than I did and uh, especially serving overseas. So, but I completed the officer basic course in March of 87. And then I got a, a dream job. Uh, I worked down at NASA in the Johnson Space Center. And uh, initially, I worked for Rockwell Shuttle Operations Company. It was a wholly owned subsidiary of Rockwell International. Um, um, and then I, I worked in payload operations. And it, it, when I was a kid, I used to want to be an astronaut. Never did get to become an astronaut, but I at least got to meet a whole bunch of them. And I got to work with them and work with a lot of engineers in the space program. I did that for about two years. And then I uh, decided I wanted to get into like design work and so forth. So I then I went to work for McDonnell Douglas Space Systems Company and I worked in the space station program. I was still in the, at the Johnson Space Center and we still lived in the same community, but uh, I just I just wanted to try that out. Well, interestingly, through uh, an unusual sequence of events, um, I also had a friend that persuaded me to sit for the uh, LSAT um, while I was there and he was wanting to go to law school. He, he pointed out to me that you can actually go part-time, either U of H or South Texas College of Law just takes longer because you're getting the same professors, the same textbooks and everything. You just go at night mm-hmm. instead of, um, instead of, you know, doing it three right. years during the day and taking off in the summers. And you also go to, if you're doing it part-time, you also go to class in the summers. So I did that. At first, it was very interesting in the sense that I was just intrigued. I really liked learning about, you know, our government, how the law worked and about the constitution. I especially liked constitutional law. So at first I thought, well, I'll keep pursuing this and I might go into like engineering management because some people get law degrees and they don't necessarily practice. But the more that I did it, the more I realized I wanted to practice. Okay. And so I wanted to, I wanted to be in the courtroom. I just, I like persuasion. I like the, the art of persuasion and so forth. So, um, at the same time, um, my wife and I, when I start, we started law school, we had one son who was just a little toddler. And by the time we finished law school, we had four. So, mm-hmm. uh, we had, uh, had lots of kids early on. And then, uh, by the way, we had a, after having our, our fourth son, then we had a gap of about five years. Our daughter was born in 97, and then our youngest son was born in 99. So we've got a total of six kids. Uh, but anyway, but um, while going through that process, working at the Space Center, the Johnson Space Center, and uh, doing engineering and going to law school at night, um, we also started to figure out, well, where do we want to end up? And we kind of, we kind of wanted to get out of the Houston rat race. And so if you've ever seen the movie uh, Jerry Maguire, where he writes on a napkin, you know, fewer clients, less money, we kind of had that kind of experience where I thought, let's get to a better place to live and raise a family. And um, and so even if I didn't make as much money, so uh, so that that became our plan. And I even sent a resume uh, to to a law firm in El Campo, Texas, of all oh. places. So I was, we were interested in getting into a mid-sized town and so forth. Well, I was interviewed by a couple of firms here in Brazos County, and uh, and then lo and behold, I had a second interview with one of them, and then uh, I got a job offer, and I started working for. Them. I worked for Davis and Davis. Mm-hmm. It's a very prominent law firm. It was a father son team that that started the the firm, and uh, really smart lawyers, very 
a lot of integrity. I really enjoyed working there. And it was kind of fun. I'm not related to them, but at least people thought they were somebody, thought I was somebody important when I answered oh, the phone. Yeah. So <laughs> they, they would think that Fred was my dad. And I'm yeah, like, right. Fred got a little irritated about that because he was, he's not that, he's probably only like 12 years older than I am. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I really enjoyed, I learned a whole lot from those fellows, uh, from those guys they are excellent lawyers. And, uh, but I started to do an area of law that I didn't expect to want to do. And that was criminal law. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I actually I thought it would be a prosecutor. I got a second interview with the Brazos County DA's office when I was in law school. And actually, I applied at the Harris County DA's office also. So, which was kind of contrary to what we're wanting to do about getting out of the big city. But I thought I wanted to be the prosecutor. But I realized that it's a very important uh, role also. Uh, not everybody who's charged is guilty. And even if they are guilty, they're entitled to a fair trial and a vigorous defense. I've I've often said that the prosecutors, they enforce the Texas Penal Code and other statutes. And on the defense side, we're enforcing the Constitution. Yeah. So we're making we're making them do their job right. And we're at um, we're making the police do their job right. So. Um, so and also I like to do family law. Uh, I like helping people because those are difficult circumstances. My parents were divorced. And I know what it was like to be a kid in the divorce. And uh, it can be hard on kids, really hard on kids. So I was want I was wanting to do more and more areas of law that the firm, you know, they're more interested in civil civil litigation and personal injury law, which I have nothing against those. But so you know, in, in 1995, I decided to start my own practice. I parted on good terms. I still consider them to be friends. And and uh, anyway, so I did that. And um, then I'm also civic minded. I've been civic minded since I was in college. In uh, 1998, I decided to run for, actually, I announced in 97, but I decided to run for county court law number two in 1998. 1998, I won my primary without a runoff. Mm-hmm. The incumbent, um, she'd actually um, taken a job in California, so she decided to pull out of the race. So I was unopposed in uh, November of 98. And then I took office in county court law number two, January 1st of 1999. And I was really wanting to move a lot of cases because there was a pretty significant backlog in that court. Uh, it took a long time for cases to get to trial. Oh, okay. So I, I, I knew the court coordinator and I actually met with him before I even took office. His name was Tommy Mutinos. He later went on to become a, 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 ju- a justice of the peace here in Brazos County. But uh, I met with Tommy, and he's he's former military too. He's retired Air Force, and he used to work at the Trigon at the. Uh, so so we 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 had a lot in common. We we got along well. And I told him I said, look, Tommy, I want to I want to go and set some cases for trial. So my first day on the job, uh, we actually picked a jury. We tried a jury trial. We actually picked another one two days later. We picked another one the following Monday and so forth. So we moved a whole lot of cases back then, and we cleared the backlog pretty quickly. In fact, before the end of the year. I think within 10 months, we'd gone from 1,077 criminal cases down to 377. So we we were moving cases pretty quickly. And, you know, uh, justice delayed is justice denied. So we needed to give people their day in court. It's a court of general jurisdiction. So I also preside over probate matters, um, family law cases. It has family law jurisdiction and also civil litigation, civil cases, if the amount in controversy was worth was mm-hmm. less than $100,000. If it was a larger case, it would have to be in district court. So... After doing that for a while, I had some lawyers on on both sides of the aisle or the docket uh, encourage me. Said you might want to consider running for the two seventy second district court. So because uh, that was up in two thousand, and I decided to run for that. I had a primary opponent and won the primary, and I was unopposed in November. So then took office in the district uh, court on January first of two thousand and one, and I ran for reelection in two thousand four, and then was reelected. And then um, so I served uh, a total of about eight years as a judge. Okay. Because I didn't finish the first term in county court law, I had actually run for the district bench. In 2008, I decided to run for district attorney because, like I said, I'm very interested in government and how it works. And I thought I could, I thought I could, uh, you know, bring some some good things to right. the office. 
and uh, management and so forth. And uh, didn't win, but I've been in private practice ever since, and I've really enjoyed it. But I still have this calling to serve the public. And in fact, I've wanted to serve in the state legislature hmm. uh, since I was in college. Um, have you was, run? Uh, had, had a run before. Have you ever run before for a state? Uh, actually, rep- I, in 2010, okay. Fred, Fred Brown was the incumbent, and he was— uh, I, He'd given some indication that he w- might be moving. Okay. And so uh, and then Buddy Wynn, our former retired, he's now passed away. Uh, he was um, a longtime Democrat. He was our tax assessor and collector. He decided to run for the, the spot, okay. dist- District 14. And then Fred Brown decided to run after also, but I'd already announced. And so then it was a four-candidate race because Blanche Brick, who became a yeah. city councilwoman um, in College Station, she was also running. So it was a four-candidate okay. race, but it's it's pretty hard to beat an incumbent because- yeah. uh, They've got a lot of people that, I mean, they've seen him work and so forth. Um, and uh, a lot of people support him. Mm-hmm. So uh, I ran in 20, 2010 and, you know, it was unsuccessful. Fred Brown got reelected. And then in 2018, I decided to run. And Mr. Rainey was, uh, he was the incumbent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't win that race. But since he's uh, decided to retire, I thought, well, maybe now is the time. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, well, let's get into some issues uh, that we wanted to talk to you about today. I know judging from some past conversations, um, I've heard you speak a lot about property tax. This, this podcast, we're interested in, in things like housing affordability. How can you make someone's uh, living place more affordable? And so I want to hear a little bit about your ideas for property taxes. Okay. Well, I have a strong disdain for property taxes because I think in many situations they're unfair, they're arbitrary, and they're really hard on folks who have a hard time affording them. And especially with, I mean, people want to move to Texas. It's a great place to live. Uh, last time I checked, I think the population of Texas had been increasing by about a thousand people a day. That's correct. It is. It, if you uh, if you add it up, that's like a million a million new people every three years. Right. And especially now, a lot of folks are coming from California, and they're. I've heard of stories of Californians coming in buying property sight unseen. Mm-hmm. And what's that doing? And and a lot of them because their property is so expensive, right. they've got these huge windfalls. Uh, I mean, they'll, they'll sell property they might have had for 20 years and they're just they've got a huge amount of money and they're able to pay a lot more. They're, they're driving up, they're driving up the price of land. Right. My wife and I have a, have a, a small place uh, that we like to get away to in uh, Edwards County. OK. And we got it about a little over maybe two and a half years ago. And I think it's already increased in value by 40 or 50 percent in right. just a couple of years. And so but that also affects people here in these towns in like Brian and College Station, because there's folks that they might be approaching retirement age. They might have been in a house for a long time. But all of a sudden the appraiser says, well, your house has gotten it, it's really valuable now. So you're going to I mean, even if the authorities don't increase the tax rate, the valuation increases how much they have to pay in taxes. Right. Now, this past year, my wife and I paid one and a half percent of our home's value. Uh, towards property taxes. Mm. So I would like to pursue a path uh, to actually eliminate property taxes because it's going to be difficult. I know it's going to be difficult because schools have to be properly funded. County governments have to be properly funded. And and cities, they get a sliver of their revenue from from property taxes as well. So we've got to find alternative ways of doing that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's if you think about it, there's functionally three types of taxes. There's an income tax. Don't want that. In fact, there's a constitutional amendment preventing us from having that in Texas, so right. that's not going to happen. And then there's property taxes, which is can be very arbitrary, and uh, and also the the wealthy they oftentimes have an advantage because they can afford lawyers to litigate the valuation of properties and so forth. Right. And it's hurting it's hurting just the hardworking middle class folks and the poor folks most of all because 
uh, because they can't and they just have to pay it. And there have been people in the, in our community who've had to sell their houses because they could not afford to pay the property taxes anymore. That's correct. So I would like to find alternative uh, sources of revenue to to fund the schools, the counties, and and that sliver that goes to the cities. Like what? Well. Uh, we pay twenty dollars. Excuse me, twenty cents a gallon on all of our fuel. Okay, a gallon of gasoline has a twenty cent state tax on it. The uh, gallon of diesel has a twenty cent state tax on it. Okay, I, it's going to require a lot of math. Mm-hmm. Okay, it wouldn't surprise me if a bill to do this was five hundred pages long because oh, it's going to have to come from several different sources. Now, um, you know, we don't have sales tax on the sale of real estate, but let's say we had, for example, a one and a half percent sales tax. Well, that's how much I paid in property taxes just for one year. Mm-hmm. If I had the choice, even if it was two, two and a half percent, even 3%, if I could pay a 3% sales tax on, on a home that I bought and I never had to pay property taxes, I would jump on top of that. Now, we, we it's it's almost assuredly, we'd also have to have a, a, you know, a small increase in sales tax. And people talk, well, that hits, you know, that hits the poor and so forth. But, you know, if, if uh, you know, John Doe or, or, or you know, or, um, Susie Mendez or, you know, you know, anybody, if anybody's paying, let's say $500 a month in property tax out of their mortgage payment, because most mortgage companies require that we escrow our right. tax, our property tax payments and also the insurance. So if their mortgage payment was, to, if they're paying $500 a month, their mortgage payment goes down $500 a month because they're not having to pay the property taxes. Well, then they're going to have more to pay like a, you know, let's say a quarter or a half percent more in, in sales tax. I know it's not going to be easy. I know it's not going to be easy. And uh, but it, I think it's worth doing because it is the most the consumption tax. I mean, you've got income tax, which we don't want. We got property tax, which we have, and is is cumbersome and complicated and unfair. And then you got consumption tax. You never hear about lawsuits about somebody suing somebody over. Well, I had to pay twenty cents a gallon on on gasoline. Okay, right. it's 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 so fair to everyone, mm-hmm. and so that's what I favor. And it will also encourage savings and encourage people to to develop and and just keep. Um, just developing their homes and improving their homes and so forth. So now what's a fallback position? Uh, well, I don't want to have a fallback position going into it, but I know that it, it might actually take to eliminate property taxes. It might take uh, a few years, maybe a few terms, maybe like longer. Down yeah, maybe thing, longer. Yeah. The problem that we have is if we increase taxes somewhere over here on one side, and we're trying to eliminate property taxes here. The problem is, well, what happens if you can't get the other one eliminated? Then you got two taxes because because the government it, it, there's it's almost never the case where there's a temporary tax. Now we'll say this though: if you go on the state comptroller's website, there's actually a very good segment or a page that talks about the long history of property taxes in Texas, and and they even point out that up until 1982 we had a state property tax, and then that was abolished. So if we can reform. State- Property tax. Yes, yes. Okay. If it's on the, it's on their website. Now that's where I got that from. Okay, the comptroller's website. So, if you look, if you look, I mean, if if the if the whole state of Texas can revise its budget and how it pay, it pays for essential governmental services, if the whole state can do it, then I think that we can do it also for the schools and the counties and and, and the cities. Oh, okay, got so, it. So anyway, getting back to the other thing, as far as like, if that can't be done, I still would like to seek property tax relief in another way. And one way, I mean, if you increase uh, the homestead exemption significantly, uh, a lot of people would end up not having to pay property taxes at all. Really? Okay. Well, I mean, okay, let's just, I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I haven't done the math yet. Okay, I'm pretty good with math, but I haven't done this math. But let's say the homestead exemption was up to uh, 450000 Oh, yeah. The the average home in, in Texas is about 447000 last time I checked. So 
if your if your home was that much or less, well, then you wouldn't I be paying see. property taxes. Okay, so basically taking it from the one hundred thousand that currently exists after, yes. after the last legislature and significantly going up. Well, that would certainly help the, the working folks, yeah. the middle class folks, and also the the the, the, the people who are struggling more, sure. and the poorer folks. Okay. And another area that uh, we deal with, um, with Habitat for Humanity, like any other builder, is the cost of regulation. So mm-hmm. um, there have been some studies recently that say that close to a quarter of a home's um, sticker price is regulation at the local, state, and federal level. Uh, have you given any thought to attacking um regulations if you're elected um, as a means to try and get that price point as affordable as possible for families looking for an affordable home? Well, yes, I I favor minimal regulation. My view of government is that government should provide essential services and some things that that, that the the private sector cannot provide. And it it should provide some regulation, uh, some regulation to just ensure an orderly society and to uh, just to protect people from dishonest practices and so forth and so on. For example, um, there's regulations as to how we install septic systems. You know, if 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 you're out in an area or or, or in a county where uh, you're outside of any city limits and there's no regulations governing a septic system and the and the builder only puts one septic tank in or doesn't do it properly, you're not going to see that. You're not going to see that. You know, you're just going to see the ground after the house has been made ready and so mm-hmm. forth. So there are times when some regulation is appropriate just to protect consumers sure. from uh, from unethical builders and uh, or, or or other contractors that might not uh, do things the right way or might do they might create something that's unsafe. Um, you know, for example, um, I mean, if there's, I know that there's houses in certain parts of College Station when they were built in the 70s, they have very thin slabs and they have all kinds of foundation problems. And you can't see that when you buy the house. So I'm not saying I'm against all regulation because I think there's some that's, that's, com- that's, that's sensible and that is beneficial and helpful. But I sure don't like bureaucracy and I don't like just endless red tape. And I would like to eliminate that to the extent yeah. that I could. And kind of related to that there's there's a lot of uh, at state level politics there's a lot of um what i've noticed is that representatives they're either for a certain amount of preemption of local government or they're not they're they're for local control totally uh where do you stand on that in terms of when you're making laws regulations things like that do you say local do your own thing or that there is a certain amount of I mean, you mentioned regulating safety. Right. Like that. Well, that's a very broad question. I know. And we could, <laughs> we could talk about that for hours, um, probably over several days. But um, I think that there's some that's appropriate, uh, some straight state preemption, but I think it should be limited as much as possible. I think that government should do as much as is necessary and no more. So I don't, I mean, the government shouldn't be in the business of making profit and so forth and so on. We should plan for the future and we should prepare but uh, I favor local control as much as possible because the people who in a certain locale uh, are, uh, they're going to better know what the needs are. Sure. I mean, like, for example, uh, you know, Brazos County. Uh, I love living here. My wife and I, we've raised our family here. We love living here. And but the, the situations here are very different from how they are down in uh, when we lived in Friendswood, Texas. And then uh, the soil's different, for example. Um, on the other hand, I love to go up to the uh 
to East Texas and go deer hunting. Well, Palestine, Texas is different from Brazos County, sure. Texas. And so in Real County, let's say Lakey, that's the county seat of Real County. Well, that's very different. Right. Okay. So, so I favor local control and that's just because the, the, pe- the local people will best know what needs to be done. Okay. Got it. Well, in the just couple of minutes we have left, is there anything that we missed that you want to talk about? Again, we just have a couple of minutes, but um, is there anything we missed? Well, uh, there's several things that are important to me, but I'm trying to think what would what's you know most uh, my greatest concern to your listeners. I favor, uh, I mean, I favor border security. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, if Californians want to move here or people from Oregon want to move here, you know, well, it's, it's a free country. They have the right to move here. But I also see a problem with the influx of population coming in that are not lawful. And let me hasten to add, I'm not against immigration. I, sure. I favor legal immigration. Okay, If you think about it, unless we're Native Americans, all of us are descended from an immigrant if we're not an immigrant right now. You know, my... I, my mother-in-law did my genealogy for me and, you know, we can trace back where we came from and who arrived where and so forth uh, from from uh, England. But uh, so I'm not against immigration, but right now they're not vetting people. OK, there are people that are coming in here that I think hate us. Mm. And that is a big concern of mine. So I want us to be I want us to be more secure in that sure. sense. I'm also concerned about I'm also concerned about how reckless our federal government is um, with the spending of money. And a lot of folks don't understand if you have a fiat currency and you, well, infl- inflation by, nef- by definition is the increase in currency. And whenever they keep printing more dollars, you have more dollars chasing goods, but it just drives the price of everything up. And I'm very concerned about that. I know there's a movement in the last session to try and create some sort of uh, uh, Texas uh, bullion-based um, currency. I'm not, not exactly sure the best solution for that, but I think that Texas needs to prepare for the future. And um, so that we can insul- so that we can lessen the effects of some of the damage that's, that's being done to the whole country in Washington. Wow. So, okay. but there's, and there's some other issues that are very important to me, but I think those were probably the most, I don't know how much time we have left, but uh, there's, um, I mean, I think that would be for, for your audience. I think that would be some of the most important ones. Perfect. Well, we're about out of time, but um, before we go, can you give for our listeners uh, who might want to get in touch with you, learn more about your campaign or even help? Uh, where can they go? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, well, they can go to our website. That's the easiest way. Electricdavis.com, one word. And it's not electric, like, like you in the charge out That's of it. That's kind of what I thought. You, you, I gotta put, you gotta put a K in there. So <laughs> okay. it's, uh, E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-K-D-A-V-I-S.com. And you can just send us an email. And if you want to help us out, you know, put up a yard sign or, or just, you know, help us block walking or whatever, that would be a great way to do it. Well, perfect. Well, Rick, we really appreciate you coming on the Think Brazos podcast. Again, this has been Rick Davis running for the 14th uh, State House District. And um, thanks again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. The Think Brazos podcast is brought to you by Bryan College Station Habitat for Humanity. Our mission is a community where everyone can afford a home they're proud of. Habitat is a 501c3 charitable organization, so we do not make political endorsements. If you'd like to support our work in the community, you can make a tax-deductible donation online at habitatbcs.org. The Think Brasses podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts and on our website at thinkbrasses.org. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel if you prefer to watch videos of our conversations. 
Thanks for listening. And just remember, think local, think Brazos. Think local, think Brazos.